It's Muppeturgy with a very special episode about the Ethel Merman episode of The Muppet Show, featuring our own very special guest star, Larry Owens. Yay! I see why Kermit sometimes skips the yay. It's a little embarrassing. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, welcome back, everyone. We are so happy to be here. I'm David Levy. Here today are... Christy Bauer. Adam Grossworth. Michal Richardson. And our own very special guest star, Larry Owens. Hey, Larry. Hi. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Larry Owens is an actor, singer, writer, and comedian who is most recently seen in the Pulitzer Prize-winning musical A Strange Loop, for which he received a Drama League nomination and the Obie, Lucille Lortel, and Drama Desk Awards. The cast album is available on Broadway Records. His television credits include High Maintenance on HBO, Betty on HBO, Dash and Lily on Netflix, Helpsters on Apple, and the upcoming seasons of Modern Love on Amazon, Life and Beth on Hulu, and season five of Search Party. And if you're in New York, you should catch his cabaret show, Sonhemia, at Feinstein's 54 Below on July 31st. Larry, tell us a little bit about your history with the Muppets. So I guess like the coolest thing that I can really lead with is that the show that I shot, Helpsters, it's... Uh, Sesame, I think that's like the Sesame Workshop. They were puppets. They were these. They were puppets, <laughs> and it's like all of the guys and girls. You know, Stephanie DeBruzzo, Jennifer Barnhart, and like all of the amazing people from this like world. So I got to be <laughs> on this Apple series. I got to be like the Ethel <laughs> Merman guest star <laughs> with uh, on this show, helping uh, kids to learn how to code. Yeah, so uh, explain that to Ethel Merman. Uh, (laughs) but uh, helpsters is a really it's an amazing show it's so adorable and i was so excited to do something that was like okay my nieces and nephews like can watch this and like they'll think that this is cool because you know high maintenance means nothing to them but it's like this (laughs) i think will be make me the cool uncle but also just like being on set with these amazing like i don't even like they're puppeteers I guess at first, maybe foremost, but then they're also actors and singers and improvisers. And it was just so cool to like watch them do what they do. And like, I like just like how articulate they can be with the puppets and just like watching them approach the puppeteering this like with the exact same uh like thought and weight that like you know an off-broadway actor approaches a scene like they're like no like we don't want this to be like sometimes they would you know get notes and say uh like actually we want to make sure this is like real you know that like the like the human heart of like the character you know stephanie DeBruzzo, she plays like a four-year-old or like maybe she's like nine her name is cody it's coding remember cody so she plays cody and she was like really really protecting the spirit of the character and making sure that it wasn't too childish and too childlike and that the tone of it was, you know, like the, like the, the, the tone that, you know, Jim Henson just like, is just so good at doing, which is that it's for everyone. It's, it's really, really wide. So that's a big spiel. Oh, that sounds so okay. wonderful. I can't and is wait that out already. It. Is that episode out now? Yeah. You can watch it on Apple right. TV. I'm going to watch it as soon as we're done recording. How exciting. <laughs> okay. Adam, please let us know if you learn how to code. I, I will I will do that. I've already learned how to be a morning show anchor. So, you know, Apple TV Plus paying for itself. <laughs> Adam, where are we this week? Well, first we have a couple of um, corrections and additions. I have a feeling that we have perhaps misunderstood the question. First, uh, just a a credit and attribution uh, issue. In the Valerie Harper episode, I mentioned that uh, Woodstock appears to be a cannibal in the Charlie Brown Thanksgiving special. That is a joke slash observation that I fully stole from Glenn Weldon and didn't credit. And then I thought, oh, well, he'll be our guest next week. So I'll just make a correction, you know, to his not face because we can't see each other. And then I forgot again. So... um, that joke is from Glenn. And if you go to the Valerie Harper show notes on our website, you can uh, actually see his tweets complete with horrifying screenshots. So thank you, Glenn. And then uh, listener Mac Herman informed us that the saxophone Phyllis Diller played in The Entertainer was, in fact, a soprano saxophone. Although they more typically look like brass clarinets, they also can and do come shaped like that, like they appeared in that episode. So there we go. As for today, this is Season 1, Episode 22 of The Muppet Show. It was taped November 16th through 18th, 1976, 
and it aired in New York on February 21st, 1977, and in the UK on April 9th. Our air order and production order are starting to sync up. To introduce our guest star, that's what I'm here to do. So it really makes me happy to introduce to you. Ethel Merman was arguably the defining Broadway star of the 20th century, a powerhouse belter who put the broad in Broadway. In fact, her Wikipedia page even has a section labeled Profanity. Born Ethel Agnes Zimmerman in Astoria, Queens, 1908, she discovered at an early age that she liked singing, in part because she liked the attention it brought to her. She wanted to pursue a career on stage, but her mother pressured her to look into a more stable profession like teaching. Ethel compromised by learning stenography. She spent a few years in the steno pool while moonlighting as a cabaret singer. She began attracting notice from both gossip columnists and Warner Brothers, who put her on a film contract that didn't really lead to much. But her big break came in 1930 when she played The Palace and was seen by the producer of a forthcoming musical by the Gershwins called Girl Crazy. They cast Ethel as the second banana to star Ginger Rogers and wrote a song that really showed off what she could do, I Got, I got Rhythm. Man. Six years into her career, Ethel was an overnight sensation. She was signed by Paramount to do a series of musical short films, but she never left Broadway behind, appearing in George White's Scandals of 1931, Take a Chance in 1932, and her first real starring role as Reno Sweeney in Anything Goes in 1934, beginning a long and fruitful creative partnership with songwriter Cole Porter, who would go on to write for Merman, Red Hot and Blue, DeBerry Was a Lady, Panama Hattie, and Something for the Boys. She also desperately wanted to find love and start a family. In 1940, she met theatrical agent William Smith, and 10 weeks later, they were married. Their marriage would not last a year. In 1941, she and Smith divorced, and Ethel married newspaper executive Robert Levitt. Their marriage would last about a decade, but it did produce two children, Ethel Jr. and Robert Jr. In 1946, she starred in Any Get Your Gun, introducing a number of Irving Berlin standards and creating another signature role for herself, which she would return to in the 60s. In 1950, Berlin wrote Call Me Madam for Merman, which would net her her only competitive Tony Award. It would also be one of only two of her Broadway roles she would get to preserve on film. The other was Reno Sweeney in a 1936 film of Anything Goes, but her part was reduced to give more of the spotlight to Bing Crosby. She did have something of a film career throughout the 30s. She was featured in a number of musical comedies on screen, including a couple of Eddie Fisher vehicles and Alexander's Ragtime Band, which was 20th Century Fox's highest-grossing film of the 30s. She spent the 40s on Broadway, but returned to the screen in 1953 with the film adaptation of Call Me Madam. She followed that up with There's No Business Like Show Business, opposite Marilyn Monroe. That film sputtered at the box office, thus ending her small Hollywood comeback. However, in this period, she had divorced her second husband and married Robert Six, the president of Continental Airlines. So, at that point, Ethel more or less decided that she wanted to try being a housewife in Colorado. Her husband realized how unhappy this was making her, and he encouraged her to return to Broadway, which she did in 1956. Unfortunately, The Vehicle was pretty much her only unsuccessful show, Happy Hunting, which was written by an unknown songwriting team of Matt Doobie and Harold Carr. She thought the songs were subpar, and she had a very well-publicized feud with her co-star, Fernanda Lamas. That unhappy experience meant that when she was approached to star in her next and last original musical, Gypsy, she insisted that Stephen Sondheim, whose only previous Broadway experience was writing the lyrics for West Side Story, could not write the music himself. He begrudgingly acquiesced in order to work with a star of her caliber and teamed up with composer Julie Stein. The show was a hit of landmark proportions, and even critics were surprised at the depth that Merman displayed since she had not ever previously been given the opportunity to act to that degree. She would be devastated, however, not to be able to star in the film version of Gypsy, despite multiple promises from director Mervyn Leroy. She would make a couple of notable films after that, including 1963's It's a Mad, 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 Mad World, the 1974 animated Journey Back to Oz, and of course her final film appearance in Airplane in 1980. In the midst of all this, her third marriage fell apart, and she and Robert Six divorced in 1960, Her personal life would only get worse when she had a whirlwind romance with Ernest Borgnine that resulted in a one-day marriage, and then even worse than that when her daughter, Ethel Jr., died of a drug overdose in 1967. She did return to Annie Get Your Gun on Broadway in 1966, and then in 1970, for the first and only time, she took on a replacement role when she became the final woman to star in Hello, Dolly! in its original Broadway run, which is even more of an event because the role had been written with her in mind, but she had declined it when the show was in development. 
Following Dolly, she embarked on a final act of performing in concert with symphony orchestras around the country and making memorable guest star appearances on television. In addition to The Muppet Show, you could catch her on A Special Sesame Street Christmas and on The Love Boat, among many, many others. In 1983, as she was about to travel to Los Angeles to perform at the Academy Awards, she collapsed in her apartment. Doctors discovered that she had a brain tumor, which would take her life 10 months later, February 15th, 1984. And that's Ethel Merman. Larry, as our guest, we'd love for you to go first. What did you think of this episode overall? I actually loved this episode. Ethel Merman actually is like someone who, this is sacrilege to say, I, uh, like Aretha Franklin, before Aretha Franklin died, I sort of had this like weird relationship to her where I was like, oh, she's just like this like stereotype of a big black woman who wails. And then only like in reviewing her like life and history was I like, oh no, this was a pioneer person. Like this was like someone with like huge tenacity and grit. And so like same thing with Ethel Merman. Like to me, she was just like the, you know, you know, okay, wow, my voice is shredded. I had a concert last night. But you know, this is like the <laughs> Ethel Merman Yodel thing <laughs> that you everyone can do um and then just being like oh no this like like to be that influential as a broadway star like for that long and to like make these like songs hits is like so iconic actually iconic not in the overuse of that word and so the first thing that i was struck by in this episode was how good she sounds like this late in her career like her voice is in such good shape she's singing like in the original keys which is like really really hard um to do and just also like even though she's known for this sort of like pin you to the back of the wall like vocal uh, largesse, I was like, wait, hold on. Ethel Merman actually is just like a soprano with mix. Like her voice is actually like really like light and and sweet uh, in, in its own way. So those are my like adult takeaways of just like, okay, wow. Me looking at Ethel the woman. Christy, how about you? Yeah, I, I agree with all of that. I think this episode is really uneven, but it's really sweet. Like I genuinely loved the Ethel Merman of it all, but other than Java, I didn't really care for any of the non-Merman parts of the episode. And I suspect we'll get into this, but I actually have a question for us to ponder. Initially, it felt like the Muppets were too starstruck by Ethel Merman. And I, I'm wondering, how much of that do you think is the humans being starstruck? I had the same thought, and it reminded me a lot of when Lena Horne was on The Muppet Show. I think they treat them both in the same way. They're both sort of these grand dames of the theater Ethel was 68 at the time that this was recorded, 69 at the time it aired. And I think that both the Muppets and the Muppet performers were a little bit in awe of her, which is is really charming because she is so game. She is so happy to be there, so thrilled to be performing with them. She did press appearances with them to promote this. Uh, We'll have one in the show notes that's uh, you should definitely watch because she's just she's just so clearly pleased to be there. And I actually was thinking about, I wonder if, because this is after the death of her daughter, when she, I think, was doubly invested in being a part of her grandchildren's life, if she felt like this was some way to connect with them through this, like, major pop culture event. I don't know. Uh, it just seemed to mean a lot for her to be there. And I think that as the song goes, I think you really feel the mutual admiration society that we see on stage. That said, I agree with Christy that the stuff that did not have Ethel Merman, with the exception of Java, felt a little draggy to me. Michal? Yeah, uh, echoing what everybody else said about the unevenness of the episode. Everything that wasn't Ethel Merman was somewhere between fine and eh. And everything with Ethel Merman was lovely. And I will also echo Larry's comment about uh, marveling at the shape of her voice and just eh, everything she sang. I was just picturing her placement being like, oh, how did you, oh, all the, it's beautiful. (laughs) Happy to just watch her be present on stage and listen to her do anything. Yeah, I pretty much agree with you guys, except I think I liked the non-Ethel stuff better than, than you did. I once said years ago on a on a different podcast entirely that uh, I like The Muppet Show best when it's more 30 Rock than SNL. And this season has been making me question that assertion. But this backstage plot, while not, not great, and we'll get into it, 
is the beginning of, I think, you know, where, where the show is going with being a show about making a show. And I really like getting to see Kermit in that mode. And interestingly, the, the episode that I, I, I said that about was the Pearl Bailey episode, which we have months to go before we get there, but it's, you know, it's, it's sort of another, another legend, another medley, um, but much, a much sillier episode just to, to, you know, go back to what you're saying about everyone being so starstruck. Um, it's just interesting to kind of compare the two because they're structurally very similar, but tonally very different. Let's remember that when we get to season three, we got a ways to go. So I know that I tend to say almost every week, we've got a lot of music this week, but for real, we got a lot of music this week. <laughs> yeah, a lot uh, of ground to cover. Yeah, for sure. And and we will cover it uh, swiftly and terribly. Um, <laughs> so the our, our first number is Signature Muppet Bit. This is a song called Java. It's an instrumental that was written in 1957 and originally recorded by Alan Toussaint. And it was made a number four hit by a trumpeter Al Hurt in 1963. And that's the version that they use in the show. And the general setup is there are a couple of slinky looking <laughs> Muppets. That end up in the- yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 said, who gets the idea to make a slinky with feet and bedroom eyes when he saw this? It's, it's perfect. It's, it's like, yeah, they're like, like bits of like a like a accordion pipe uh, with like f- floofy bits on each end and eyes, and they they dance and dance fight. It's a signature bit for the Muppets, and they've done it several times, including on Fanfare in July of nineteen sixty five, on the Ed Sullivan Show in nineteen sixty six, on the Today Show in January of seventy seven, and then this, and then they did it again on the Tonight Show in nineteen seventy nine. So that this must have been near and dear to their hearts, and it's a lot of fun. I always enjoy it, but. It's very simple. Yeah. Settle disputes with an explosion. That seems to work for the Muppets. I think it's brilliant. I think that it's like, (laughs) so just, and from a writing standpoint to get all of that story (laughs) out of two slinkies Mm -hmm. (laughs) with no words and just like that music, it's pretty genius that like there are so many beats of like establishing the big slinky and the music then it comes a little slinky and then uh oh there's tension <laughs> and then of course you know the yeah explosion you know you got to get out of a sketch somehow yeah they have personalities they have relationships I've, I've said sometimes that some of these little dance numbers with no dialogue with strange creatures are kind of like a, a ballet but they do it with more explosions I kept going back and forth on whether I thought the puppetry in this is actually simple or whether it just seems simple because they're so good at it. Because the part where the bigger Muppet sort of rotates its face around, I guess if you're just holding the very bottom with like just your little fingers, maybe you can make that happen. But I don't know. It made me want to grab a slinky and like see if I could, figure it out. Yeah. I mean, it's technically impressive as much as it is delightful. It's also worth mentioning that at least the big Java puppet, I don't remember seeing the smaller one is on display in the, the Jim Henson collection at the museum of moving image in uh, New York. Yes. We'll have a photo in the show notes and we should say just because somebody will correct us. They're not slinkies. They are technically, yeah, they're, yeah, um, no, they're, like, they're industrial yeah. um, like ventilation yeah, full-on tubes tubing we will no longer say slinky we will not say slinky anymore <laughs> no brand name <laughs> say industrial I... tubing um <laughs> industrial tubing we are we are pedants and we love our pedantic commenters we appreciate it all <laughs> sometimes we purposely say things wrong just to see if people are listening <laughs> and you are so Keep thank them you on their toes. <laughs> So, as befits a Broadway legend coming to the Muppet Show stage, we have a medley of Broadway hits. Uh, Ladies and gentlemen, ordinarily I just introduce the guest star and get out of the way, but tonight I personally get to participate. You see, everybody wanted to sing a duet with Ethel Merman, and because she's introduced so many Broadway hits, we thought that uh, some of us could do a few of them. Uh, Or a few of us could do some of them. (laughs) 
Anyhow, I now take great pleasure in introducing Miss Ethel Merman and some of her songs and some of us and uh, me. Yeah, some of her songs is seven of her songs. <laughs> and I, we, we won't go in too deep on them, but we're going to do a lightning round talking about these because there are a lot of familiar uh, names from previous episodes. So we don't necessarily have to give you all sorts of biographical information. So uh, the first three of the songs are all Cole Porter songs. The first one, which she sings a, a snatch of with Kermit, is You're the Top which is from the musical Anything Goes, uh, originally from 1934. And over the course of the version that Cole Porter himself recorded, he compares the subject of the song to 35 things, I counted, including Gandhi, Turkey Dinner, Camembert, and Pepsodent. You're the National Gallery, your garbled salary, your cellophane. You're sublime. You're a turkey dinner. You're the time. Of the Derby winner, I'm a toy balloon that's faded soon to pop. But if things behind the bottom, you're the top. So that's that's Cole himself. And Can I just uh, say, Darby, my ass. Cole exactly. Was born in Indiana. Yeah, that 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 was the exact reason I pulled it. As I was just like, <laughs> my guy, you were from Peru, Indiana. Mm-hmm. Quit trying to sound British. But uh, that's that's relevant because uh, over time the song collected other verses with updated references, and PG Woodhouse actually put in some British references for uh, the first British production of Anything Goes. So, uh, yeah, uh, it, all sorts of unusual good things get added, like hot tamales and Ovaltine and the moon over Mae West's shoulder. So I like that in this version they did include what I think is one of the original lyrics about. Uh, you're Mickey Mouse. And then Ethel says that to Kermit and he says, Mickey Mouse, is that a compliment? And I was really happy to see that the Disney overlords allowed that onto the Disney plus version. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh. We've been preparing for this podcast. I was texting my friend I'm doing a Muppets podcast and I was asked (laughs) over text gun to your head, (laughs) blind marriage. Can't know anything about them before super into Disney or super into Muppets. I said, my spouse um, Muppets Muppets are cool and subversive Borscht Belt comedian musicians. Disney is literal white supremacy. (laughs) 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 women getting the men of their dreams disney has ruined me half of the muppets are black miss piggy is nene leaks oh my god somewhere i had to get that into the podcast i love it but this is i feel like on or on the earlier point of like why are they revering ethel merman so much is that weird that's not weird think about the marriage of like this song with like this like identity of this show where it's like tuneful it's pure it's sweet but also like cheeky and like there's this intellect to like the writing and like that's like what she pioneered and like we're gonna keep going through these songs and each one is a hit for the time in a way that like Ariana Grande (laughs) is like, has like, you know, so many top tens. Like these are like the songs that everyone is thinking about and singing. And she is just smashing them all up into this like crazy, like overview of a career. It's actually wild that like, that we still know these songs and care about these songs. Yeah. It it speaks to the, uh, the song craft of them, the, they're as delightful now as, as they were 80 years ago. So song two, also a Cole Porter song, is Friendship, uh, which Bozzy sings with Ethel. Uh, it's from a musical called Dewberry Was a Lady from 1939. And I, I learned a lot about some old-timey musicals that I knew nothing about other than these songs. Some of them, as it turns out, were quite wild. This song is from a show about a guy who's in love with Ethel Merman, but Ethel Merman is in love with someone else. And a third guy suggests that the first guy, Rufy the second guy, but then he accidentally roofies himself and imagines that he's in France in the 1700s. And the guy who suggested the Rufy scheme is actually Louis the 16th. Namesake of my hometown, Louisville, Kentucky. Shout out. And somehow the whole thing makes him realize that drugs are bad and he shouldn't end up with Ethel Merman anyway. Who am Broadway! <laughs> Been what there. a lesson. Don't do drugs, don't pursue <laughs> Ethel Merman. And the guy who roofies himself is played by Bert Lahr, the cowardly lion. <laughs> and today, that would be an HBO miniseries. <laughs> <laughs> Merm of Easttown. <laughs> there is a movie version of it with Lucille Ball and Red Skelton and Gene Kelly. And let me tell you, it is absolutely terrible. Do not bother. Oh my God, Miss Ball is kryptonite to these movie musicals. Oh. <laughs> I think all of the Cole Porter songs that uh, that we'll talk about, 
eventually found their way into subsequent revisions of Anything Goes. This one got added in 1962 to an off-Broadway revival. So song number three is The Lovely from a musical called Red Hot and Blue from 1936. And this one sounds even wilder because in this show, Ethel played Nails O'Reilly Duquesne, a wealthy young widow who organizes a cross-country search for a woman her boyfriend branded on the butt with a waffle iron as a child. (laughs) Your guess is as good as mine. Broadway! I hope I get to use the phrase branded on the butt with a waffle iron sometime this week. (laughs) That's, that's amazing. I mean, do you have a waffle iron? You can make that happen. I better get one. <laughs> I feel like the title of that musical just should have been Why I Oughta. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wait. Is that what is does the red hot in Red Hot and Blue referring to the. I'm yeah, upset. <laughs> it's terrible. It's terrible. Um, <laughs> Why I Oughta. Yeah, so Delovely is another song that was not written for Anything Goes, but got assimilated into Anything Goes. It was added to a film version in 1956. And it's also the title of a truly bonkers Cole Porter biopic from 2004 starring Kevin Klein that I could talk about for days. It is bananas. I don't necessarily recommend it, but uh, if you're in the mood for something wacky and austere at the same time, <laughs> check out Delovely. My friends at the This Had Oscar Buzz podcast, it's their most recent episode as we record this. I, there'll probably be another one by the time you're hearing it. But if, if you want to listen to very smart movie people talk about how bonkers that movie is instead of watching it, I highly recommend it. We'll put a link in the show notes. Honestly, now I want to watch it. I mean, uh, they made me want to watch it too. So Alanis <laughs> Morissette is in it. I mean, austere and what? Bananas. Yeah, that's Just, my favorite genre. Yeah. <laughs> Like it's it, it's trying so hard to be like a, a really serious Oscar movie, and it's just like suddenly it's like oh there's Elvis Costello, there's Cheryl Crow, okay. Um, <laughs> I mean, like the first sentence of the Wikipedia description says, as he is about to die, Porter's life flashes before him in the form of a musical production staged by the Archangel Gabriel in the Indiana Theater, where the composer first performed on stage. So that gives you a sense of like how wild the setup is what i love about this on the muppet show is that it starts with scooter popping up and ethel merman looks at scooter in the way that i imagine she looked at all of her younger gay fans at that time just like <laughs> this mix of like i love uh, you so much and you also confuse the fuck out of me yeah <laughs> we we should say i guess the whole setup for this is that she's sitting at a, a dressing room table you know with an empty mirror frame with light bulbs around it and so everyone's popping up for the most part in in the mirror they're obviously not meant to be her reflections it's a sketch but like there's just something very strange about if you imagine it as sort of her (laughs) delusion i don't know it got a little weird um and then when it's piggy's turn of course she leans out and you know leans through the frame but then some of them break the frame in ways that are very funny which we're about to get to actually if your life flashed before your eyes but it were staged by the muppets this is, I guess, a little how it bit. would happen if you're Ethel Merman. So song number four is Together Wherever We Go from, from Gypsy, which we've already talked about quite a bit. And uh, Ethel sings it with the terrible two-headed singer from the Ben Vereen episode. Christy, I was really hoping you would use the version that I wrote. <laughs> oh, yeah. David refers to them in our notes as the two-headed asshole. And yeah, I From the I Ben agreed. Vereen Wonder Bread show. Let's give him his full yeah. due. <laughs> okay. Yeah, uh, just quick fun fact about Gypsy. It could have been written by uh, several other of the songwriters in this and other episodes because uh, it was originally offered to both Cole Porter and Irving Berlin and they turned it down. And apparently Cy Coleman and Karen Lee auditioned to write it but didn't get the gig. And uh, one of the songs they used to audition for it was Firefly, which would become part of Kermit's repertoire in the 90s. And apparently Ethel performed a longer version of this with Fozzie and Kermit in a promotional appearance on Dinah Shore's talk show, Dinah. And Aww. we'll have a clip of that in our show notes. So next, we have two Irving Berlin songs in a row. First, Ethel and your fave and mine, Uncle Deadly, enjoy a tiny, tiny section of You're Just in Love from Call Me Madam. I hear singing and there's no one there. You would. <laughs> Anything you can do, I can do. Anything better than you. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can. Yes, I can. No, you can. Yes, I can. Yes, I can. Anything you can be, I can be greater. Sooner or later, I'm greater than you. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. No, you're not. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. 
I could be a racer quite the So that's actually both of the Irving Berlin songs in a row. The second one being Anything You Can Do from Annie Get Your Gun. But going back to the first one, You're Just in Love from Call Me Madam. Call Me Madam is a show in which Ethel Merman played a woman who wackily became the U.S. ambassador of a fictionalized version of Luxembourg, unfortunately called Lichtenberg, which was also the name of a concentration camp. Wait, but, really? Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. Oh, huh. This happened in 1950. I mean, I know Google didn't exist at the time, but, you know, maybe look up a name before you use it. But yeah, she's a, a, an ambassador, not to be confused with Madam Secretary, which is where Taya Leone plays a secretary of state. <laughs> I don't have anything interesting to say about Annie Get Your Gun other than that in it, Ethel played Annie Oakley. And I just w- want to play bizarre and random clip. Yes, that is a clip from the original Tokyo cast recording of Annie Get Your Gun. And if you're wondering, Christy, why do you have the Tokyo cast recording of Annie Get Your Gun? I simply say to you, why don't you? Mm. I think Um, both are fair questions. Yeah. (laughs) Okay. And then our very last song is a song called Mutual Admiration Society from Ethel's only real Broadway flop, Happy Hunting. And it was written by uh, unknown songwriters at the time, Matt Doobie and Harold Carr. And this was their only major Broadway credit. Around the time that Ethel had gone into retirement in the 50s and moved to Colorado, this was the thing that brought her out of retirement. It's a show in which she plays a woman trying to find her daughter, a royal husband, after being inspired by the marriage of Grace Kelly and Prince Rainier. And it just reminds me of a clip I saw in the 90s where a woman was interviewed who had just moved to the UK from the States with her daughter, with the express intent of getting her daughter married to Prince William. I saw this like 20 years ago, and I think about these people like two or three times a year. I just wonder what their (laughs) life is like. But that's the medley. (laughs) (laughs) I love that they got as many Muppets as they could into this medley that it's not just a bunch of songs, but it's like everyone has one or two lines and just you get to really just like see this really loving interaction with all of these characters and then the decision to have Piggy do the contentious number from Annie Get Your Gun, I feel like was a really nice touch to see these two uh, girlies go at it. It's one of my favorite things to watch and i feel like piggy styling piggy is so chic uh always and like the style holds up like that slip dress with the shoulder length straight blonde wig was just really really gorgeous (laughs) i would say she could wear that today and instagram would go crazy (laughs) i love how everyone's in character in this you know but it's it's piggy and and scooter and gonzo and like they're so you know, again, it sort of feels like a season two episode. I mean, I'm, you know, I wouldn't have been mad if, if George and Mildred had showed up, but everyone, everyone has exactly the right bit for them. It's such a great deployment of Uncle Deadly. And he's not in the mirror. He like slinks up behind her, you know, and he's brand new at this point. And they're already like, well, this guy was fun. Let's use him more. I think it's great. I think it's so much fun. So our UK spot this week is the return of uh, Miss Mousy With a vengeance. With a health code violation. But baby, don't you sugar me, don't stir me, boy, or try to spoon. Don't sugar me, cause us is through. So yes, this is uh, Don't Sugar Me, which is from an album called Songs of the Pogo, uh, and it's Pogo as in the comic strip Pogo. And the song was written by the strip's creator, uh, Walt Kelly. Uh, The album's from 1956. I discovered that the CD of it is currently ranked 7,087 in traditional pop on Amazon. And that just seems really high for a random (laughs) CD from 1956. I just wanted to say. The setup of this is Miss Mousy is in, in a teacup in Statler and Waldorf's box. So like they've done like a perspective thing where like they've, they've chroma keyed it so that she looks like mouse size compared to them. And I like the effect, but it's also upsetting. (laughs) So Jim Henson really fucking loved Pogo in the Brian J. Jones biography of Jim Henson. He goes into this a bit. And I think it's probably because 
both Jim and Walt Kelly shared this sort of like Louisiana Bayou sense of humor. And this is not the only song from Songs of Pogo that I believe we'll hear on The Muppet Show. I only have one question about this, which is Miss Mousy is a uh, mouse sized here, but in the Muppet Valentine show, she was the same size as Kermit. So did, did she shrink? And this ends with the teacup falling off of the ledge. So presumably she's dead now. We don't have to worry about it again. <laughs> it's a good point. I mean, much more fun than watching Miss Mousy's performance is watching Statler and Waldorf just look horrified when you when you get this close up on their faces the build of their faces looks like they are reacting to something disgusting even when they're not doing anything mm. which is wonderful to watch i mean just i would just stayed on statler's face the whole time it's just jerry nelson yep it's the it same jerry up. nelson falsetto that we got yep for the, for the that's where i was here. going now that we've <laughs> talked about it i i'm so super aware of how dreadful and grating it is <laughs> and i adore jerry nelson and i, I adore too. when he sings and, it's and, his birthday today. How dare you all? Uh, well, not when people are listening to it. I mean, I like, I, I, he, he, he performs so many of my favorite characters and, and I am such a fan of his work, but this is now two weeks in a row. We've had a really hard to listen to falsetto singing performance from him. That's, that's all. And when you do listen to this song in the original version from songs of Pogo, it's not a bad song. We'll have it in the show notes. It's actually kind of charming. But it's all lost in this performance. Fortunately, our, our last musical performance redeems the show. Uh, <laughs> not redeems the show. The show didn't need redeeming. It's just a, a nice recovery after the falsetto mousy of it all. There's no business like show business, like no business I know. Everything about it is appealing. Everything the traffic will allow. Nowhere could you get that happy feeling when you are stealing that extra bow. There's no people. So it's another song from Annie Get Your Gun. Actually, we do have one good fun fact about Annie Get Your Gun, which is that the book of Annie Get Your Gun was co-written by Muppeturgy favorite Dorothy Fields. Working with her brother, Herbert. Fuck yeah. So in the original production of Eddie Get Your Gun, this was really an ensemble number that Merman was a part of, but it was not her song by any stretch of the imagination. But because the song became so popular, she adopted it as one of her many, many signature songs. And I think by the time she went back to the show in 1966, they reconfigured it a little bit so she could sing more of it. It's also one of those songs where you get the feeling that even if Ethel Merman had never come on the Muppet show, the Muppets would have gotten around to doing this song. It's such a good match for them. They, they use it elsewhere. I think it's going to come up in at least one later episode, but maybe two. And they use it. Uh, there's a little nod to it in the Muppet pitch reel before they even started the Muppet show. If you're going to make fun of Ethel Merman or like do an impression of Ethel Merman, like this might be what, what you do. I think uh, Larry called it a yodel up top, but it's also so great. Like it's so... It's just like the like the quintessential Ethel Merman. The hits just keep coming. She's literally what we would call now an influencer. This song <laughs> is synonymous with show business. Like you hear it and you know, and it's also like true. And she gets it across. And something that I just would love to note is sort of the uh, escalation of the wardrobe. So we have about five or six drapey caftans <laughs> that <laughs> elevate throughout the episode. And she's just so comfortable. Like it, 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 it just, it feels like, she is like this like weird like matriarch <laughs> to these Muppets that they like respect and like have fun with and this like this moment and like that's what the Muppets and you you talked about how it becomes more and more about putting on a show like that that's their vibe they're this like ensemble of people uh, creatures wow okay people <laughs> it's an ensemble of creatures who are show creatures and so uh like watching Ethel Merman sing this with the Muppets is, is really sweet. It's really sweet. And yeah. it's like, she's like, she's lived it, you know, like she's, she's, she's pretty old here. So, well, and you know, she spends the entire episode sitting down and not moving. I guess the blackout sketch, she's standing up and not moving, which, you know, it's fine. She's earned it, but I, I did notice it. And then, and then it ends with this and she, she is on stage and she is in a, a very sparkly caftan and, and deliberately or not, it was building to something and it, it feels really great. Um, and she sort of has this mo these moments with each of the Muppets and it's, I don't know. I found it really lovely. 
Yeah, it's a fitting anthem for her and for the whole Muppet project, really. We don't talk a lot about the direction of these episodes. They're almost all directed by Peter Harris, perhaps all directed by Peter Harris. I did not go and check. But I really noticed it in this number. She enters, coming down the stairs. She's wiping her hands off on a towel, which she then discards. That's like a very, almost like Mike Nichols touch, that it just like gives you a sense that she has like a real life in this backstage beyond just entering to do the number. After she comforts Fozzie and they all join in, it transitions onto the stage where it becomes a production number and really one of the more elaborate production numbers that we've seen, um, at least that we've seen as staged on the stage and not in like a full 360 environment. I love that at one point she's standing on the stage and there are Muppets in front of her behind her, but then the camera pulls back and there are no Muppets on stage and she comes forward And if you're paying attention, you can see on the stage that there's like a discoloration between the part where she was standing and the lip of the stage where there's like a trap door that can slide on or off so that when they need to be able to have Muppets in front of her, there's a place where they can come up. And and then, in fact, the camera does push back into her so that Muppets can come in in front of her for the big finish. It was just it was like a lot of moving pieces. It's rare that we see a transition from one set to another in the middle of an episode, uh, in the middle of a number, uh, and it all just worked really beautifully and seamlessly. And is she singing live? Because she really sounds like she is, or looks like she is, right? The lips—if she's not—if she's lip syncing, it's perfect. Yeah, it's so hard to clock. I actually went back and forth on this. I was like. Uh, is she singing as like, if she's lip singing, that would actually be like the most impressive lip sync ever (laughs) because it's so real. But I noticed that on shows from this era, everything sounds so rich. Like if you watch these variety show performances, like it's, you would think that everyone is lip syncing, but I I don't know if they like it. It always confuses me. To a really, really high degree. I I don't know. Any other thoughts? I like I feel like there's no way she could be lip syncing, but like how also could she like be singing live? When I worked in music 20 years ago, I know that uh, for example, one of the albums I worked on was the cast recording for the Broadway revival of Bells Are Ringing. And after we produced the album, we also created karaoke tracks basically so that when faith prince went on the rosie o'donnell show or wherever she could sing to the backing tracks from the cast recording so it was like it was like the exact same track from the cast recording just without her vocals so she could sing live to the pre-recorded track so i do wonder if for this if it was a mix of where maybe ethel was singing live to pre-recorded muppets or or Ethel and the Muppets were singing live to pre-recorded. We call those the stems. You know, you get the stems from the recording session, and then you sing it to it. You know, in the the mall uh, lobby. Um, <laughs> I feel like I feel like maybe the Muppets were pre-recorded, and then Ethel singing live because, I mean, she probably also wants to. You know, yeah. And the medley looked like a three-camera setup. So even though there was there were cuts in that, I I imagine that was pretty easy to actually do live. And I'm glad you pointed out the direction because having been on set with these amazing, amazing actor improviser technicians, it like it is just so it, it's so wild to see like like what they go through to get these shots. Like everyone has these little rollers and they're rolling. Okay, like, you listen to the podcast, you know all about this. So like I don't need to explain it to you. But from my luddite, like wow, I can't believe that the like, Q spend like the like a twelve hour day like on like a little roller like beneath the desk and like both doing this technical skill with your hands, but also being as present as I am. And I'm just acting <laughs> like, like you also know your lines and like you're singing, you, you know, you're lip syncing to the thing and you're making choices and, 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 and they're, and they're watching the monitors as, as they're in the scene. There's just like left brain, right brain. And then there's like 12 brain. I think that you need to do this. So the direction of it is like so integral. And I, yeah, I definitely like noticed uh, that it was well-directed, like, you know, and, and just in tonally, I just um, liked it as well. Wow. Just really a five-star Yelp review here. (laughs) Ready? Three, two, one. It is time once again for a shout out of a cannon. Let's get right to the backstage plot uh, in which we meet 
Fozzie's agent, Irving Bizarre, who almost manages to negotiate Fozzie out of a job and instead maybe does the opposite. It's hard to tell. He is so short that he, in fact, may not exist. All we see is his top hat and a pair of shoes. And uh, those shoes do not start off the negotiation on the right foot. Ah, I see what you did there. Thank you. Hiya, Kermit. How you doing, sweetie? This is an agent. Where's your office, Irving? In your hat? Very funny, very funny. Hey, who else do you handle? Rich Little? <laughs> Tiny Tim? I wouldn't handle you, I'd get what? What? What kind of talk is that? Will you get out? Take this guy and get out of here, Fozzie. I don't think this negotiation is going too well. Yeah. Also, somebody's got to say it. That's a myth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> He also uh, asks Piggy if he can handle her, which is just annoying and uncomfortable. Somewhere in the middle of all this backstage stuff, Fozzie also performs his comedy spot and manages to bomb so dramatically that he convinces the entire audience to walk out on him. And the people who leave the theater include his own cousin. What, what did the morsel say about the, is the cousin puppet is the same puppet as Fozzie, but in a bowler hat? Yeah, we, we could have figured that out on our own Muppet Morsels. Thanks. Thank you, Muppet Morsels. <laughs> Thanks for the deep trivia. And thank you for your service, Adam. Yeah. Um, and... Leo from the Muppet meeting films, which uh, we can get to later, but he's the same puppet as Wally, whom we have talked about in the Valentine show episode. And we can hear him heckle Fozzie. Hey, will you guys hold it down up there? Uh, you don't want them interrupting my act, right? No, I don't want them interrupting our sleep. <laughs> hey, bring on the comic. I am the comic. Then bring on the girls. This is not that kind of show. Then bring on the girl comic! Yeah. So he convinces the whole audience to leave, including Leo, who sounds deceptively like Waldorf, but is a different puppet. Um, Statler and Waldorf stay behind after everyone else has left, which is kind of cute. And they stay and laugh at his jokes. Hey, hey, how come you two guys are still there, huh? Did you lose your beds at the old fool's home? That's too late. I like that Fozzie says, I'm not going to be heckled by some clown who just came off the street, as though he is happy to be heckled by Statler and Waldorf. They're a known quantity, at least. Yeah. Part of the family. They have a relationship. They have a history. I love that he was able to clear out the auditorium so much that even the dead stationary Muppets left. So speaking of the Muppet morsels, they informed us incorrectly that this was the first time that we see a scene of the audience made specifically for the action which is taking place on stage. No, it's not. The Vincent Price episode had that monster audience. Mm -hmm. And yeah, you'd think if they were doing that, that there would not be a dead Muppet right in the fucking center. <laughs> but there is. With the Fozzie cousin puppet talk, or with the Fozzie's cousin talking to a dead Muppet. I mean, kind of making a joke out of it, but still. sure. Hmm. But yeah, it's weird. Anyway, right after chasing away the entire audience, Fozzie and his agent Irving Bazaar actually managed to negotiate what sounds like an improvement on Fozzie's situation. We won't settle for less than four times as much. Uh, how about a compromise? Five times as much money. Six times as much. Uh, don't push it, Irv. Uh, seven times as much. Eight times. This is my final offer. Ten times as much as he's making now. You got a deal. Good. Oh, Irv! Irv! Hey, 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 congratulations, kid. You're making ten times as much money. Yeah, yeah, and I and I used to make nothing. Right. Ah. And, and ten times nothing is a room. Nothing. What a terrible agent. <laughs> terrible this episode agent. is really harsh on Fozzie, I think. It really is. He, I mean, he doesn't make good choices as far as the agent that he hires or telling the audience, I'm going to turn my back. And when I turn around, I only want to see real Fozzie fans. It's a bit of a gamble. It's true. I do like, though, because we've talked so much about Connor being a bad producer. Um, I mean, it's not like he's actually a, a good negotiator here. But, you know, I like that Kermit gets the win here. It's it's fun to see. Yeah. Though I don't like that he's not paying his labor. Yeah, that's not great. I mean, and in... When we when we first hear about the agent and that he's here to negotiate a contract, and Kermit says, you don't have a contract. <laughs> right. None of this sounds especially promising for these performers. No. Does Fozzie have a day job? This raises all kinds of questions for me. Yeah. I mean, they're only on one night a week. What do they do the whole rest of the week? Not rehearse. I don't know. At least Fozzie then has Ethel Merman to 
cheer them up and saying there's no business like show business, which is not a bad consolation prize if you continue to make no money, but you have Ethel Merman serenading you. Could be worse. Other thoughts about the backstage plot? I mean, I thought it was a little bit of a slog. I, I think in when Nickelodeon showed this episode, they cut one of the sections of it, which probably helped because it, it does get a little repetitive, but I do like that it culminates in there's no business like show business in a way that feels actually organic to the story in a way that some of the other backstage plots, for example, uh, on the Twiggy episode, we have a pretty great backstage plot with Uncle Deadly that just sort of ends without a big finish. And this one gets the appropriate big finish. We also talk a lot about the of its time joke and, you know, uh, Irving Bazaar is a total creep to Piggy, but it's Piggy. So she hits him. Right. So there's, you know, there's like a little bit of balance in there that I, is starting to, to creep in that I like. And Ethel Merman hits a number of Muppets in this episode. She so does. I feel like it's a big women's <laughs> empowerment moment. She's great. <laughs> I mean, if empowerment means hitting men, which, okay. Spoiler alert, it absolutely does. <laughs> cool. Here for it. <laughs> so you mentioned that the heckler who's not Statler and Waldorf is Leo, who is making a cameo from his regular home in the Muppet Meeting Films, which were a series of short films that Jim Henson and the Muppets made uh, to help earn money for the company by basically doing for other companies uh, what today would be a PowerPoint presentation. They would go into these companies and say, uh, what is it that you need to teach your staff? And then they would go and make a short film with Muppets to teach that thing to the staff, sort of like Sesame Street for HR. (laughs) And uh, a lot of them are available on YouTube. They're not actually all that entertaining to watch if you do not need to get the training and whatever it is they're training, but it's interesting to watch them. It is worth looking up um, this same Leo character in the Muppet pitch reel, convincing CBS to buy the Muppet show, because as in many of the other meeting films, he gets extremely enthusiastic to maybe an unnerving point, but it's fun to see. Uh, we've got a quick blackout joke where uh, Ethel Merman complains about a mouse in her dressing room, and Hilda explains that that's the only place the mouse has to change. At which point Ethel Merman wonders, is this a zoo? An animal pops up and she confirms it is in fact a zoo. And then she just smacks animal for no reason, I guess, because he appears threatening. Perfect bitch. (laughs) I'm laughing. Which doesn't make sense. That's not how you judge whether someone has perfect pitch, but it's still funny somehow. I think this is what they call a running gag. I do love the way she hits him it's like playing whack-a-ball there is no holding back she doesn't stop to think oh there's a guy's hand in there she just like bangs at him (laughs) yeah take that knuckles also was perfect pitch was that supposed to be like a b-word thing it's a it's a callback to an earlier bit was it lena horn i think so and she needed to find her key and he helped her find her key in that episode it actually made sense (laughs) and in this one it does not yeah it's just an excuse to smack animal for being well, he's not even as creepy here as he often is, but he just he shows deserves up. it regardless. Yeah. yeah. And then this leads into the Miss Mousy sketch, except if you were watching this when it aired in the United States, there was no Miss Mousy sketch because that was the UK spot. So the mouse in the dressing room is just a thing, which is fine. Well, I mean, there is totally also normal. a mouse in the shadow puppet sketch. Oh, nice segue. Smooth. Good blend. Mm. Yeah. Given that the mouse in the shadow puppet sketch doesn't appear to be wearing any clothes, it doesn't seem to matter that much. <laughs> but... Anyway, maybe it's just wearing a skin tight outfit. Mm, yeah, spandex. Wearing a little mousy leotard. Mm, it's possible. That said, uh, there's a guest puppeteer, uh, Richard Bradshaw, an Australian puppeteer, um, shows up to do some shadow puppetry. And it is fun to watch. Is it? There's an ostrich and a mouse and a hippo, and they all have their little personality and their little bit while they play on a slide and they run across a tightrope. Um, the hippo keeps breaking things and the hippo has its own music. It makes you feel really sorry for the hippo. It's like, oh, just wanted to play on the slide. And the slide couldn't take the hippo. That I mean, it's fun in its way. And then it also, it's like, I wish that there was some other joke besides the hippo is big. I mean, it's very magnanimous of Jim Henson to give other puppeteers the platform. But, you know, if, if this is purely about like puppetry as an art form, it's also really unfortunate that this came in the same episode as Java which is actually impressive, you know? <laughs> mm. I mean, it's it's fun in isolation. Say, like, look at all the articulation that I can get on these shadow puppets. But then, yeah, as you said, look what we can do with Java. 
The music for this sketch was by their in-house composer, Derek Scott. And I actually think the music is the best part of the sketch. I agree. Made me want to die. <laughs> <laughs> the, the music or the whole deal? I mean, the whole deal, but the music in particular. Well, noted. I don't know if we need to address the fact that there's no at the dance this week for the only time in all of season one. David can rejoice. The rest of us are, I don't know. I thought it was a nice change of pace. I, I don't hate at the dance, but it does feel very repetitive to me. So that's fair. I did not miss it. That is fair. We do, however, get a talk spot. Kermit does try to compliment Ethel Merman on her long career. But I'd like you to take it easy on that legend and uh, the greatest stuff. Sounds like a eulogy. After all, I'm, I'm not quite ready to go yet. I didn't mean it like that. Well, I, I mean, I, I admit that I've been around for quite a while, but there are some things on this show that are older than I, like uh, Fozzie's jokes. <laughs> You're right there. It just seems that you've always been a part of the Broadway musical scene. I remember the opening night of Gypsy, you know? Ker- Kermit, you were at the opening night of Gypsy? Sure. Come to think of it, I did hear some croaking in the audience. Cute, cute frog joke. Piggy appears with a a glass in hand to make a toast to uh, said career of Ethel Merman. And this toast just turns out to be a request for singing tips. Got any tips? All that for one free singing lesson? Well. Now, look, Miss Piggy, let's face it. You either got it or you ain't. Mm -hmm. And all the singing lessons in the world ain't going to help you if you ain't got it. Now, let's hear you hit that high note of yours again. <clears throat> well, it shows promise. See, Kermit! But it, it, it's a bit subtle. Now, this is the way I would do it. Ah! <laughs> Did you also make some recordings as an air raid siren during the war? <laughs> and then Kermit gets uh, just thwacked off of his little perch notable that her advice there you either got it or ain't is a quote from Gypsy Mm -hmm. (laughs) also note that it is uh, against the logic of science that her lower note would crack the glass (laughs) and Piggy's higher frequency note Um, but yeah it's a and it's delivered by Ethel Merman. It worked for me, even though, yes. <laughs> my my dog was curled up next to me on the couch while I was editing these clips last night, and he did not like Piggy's note at all. <laughs> so uh, any final thoughts on this episode? Just because we've talked before about um, the Muppets' relationship to diet culture and body shaming, I want to play Fozzie's opening joke because I actually liked it this time. Hey, I went to a diet doctor and in just two months I lost $300. I like that one. That one felt like it was anti-diet culture. Go Fozzie. I skipped right over that in deciding whether to put it in the... um in the segment just because it's like more fucking diet jokes i know but i this one stood out for me because it felt like it was going in the opposite direction also he does this really cute thing where he like checks his notes after the joke bombs which obviously i made a gif of yeah and he wanders back onto the stage (laughs) he interrupts kermit by parting the curtains and still looking at his notes just to ensure that he said the right joke or to try to figure out who wrote this shit yeah, as a stand-up comedian, I definitely enjoyed Fosse's <laughs> relationship with the heckler. I thought it was uh, subversive. <laughs> All right. Well, before we say goodbye, Larry, tell us a little bit about the show you're doing now and also anything else you want to let us know about. Um, yeah, the show I'm doing now, it's uh, called Sanhemia. It's, um, I don't know how to describe it. Uh um, but the audiences are enjoying it. We're finishing up the sold out run at uh, 54 below on July 31st. And you can follow me at Larry Owens live to see when I'll be doing the show again, uh, uh, hopefully at um, more exciting venues. So yeah, it's been a pleasure. And I let the Muppets autoplay and I I caught the Kay Ballard episode, which is completely different tonally. Uh, And so just what an exciting podcast. Oh, thank you for being here. We really loved having you. I wonder why I'm so itchy. Maybe the show is starting to get under your skin. 
Thanks for listening to this episode of Muppeturgy. Join us next week for a discussion of the Kay Ballard episode, where we will be joined by Robbie Rizal. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at Muppeturgy, or on the web at Muppeturgy.com. If you like what we're doing, please spread the word. Our theme music was composed and performed by Christy Bauer. Our show logo was created by Todd Bryan Backus. And this episode was edited by me, David Levy. And the pre-picky personality when she's what is, when she's finding her hooves, so to speak. Yeah. Uh, what's the well, what, what quality is she giving off? She's a little more of an ingenue. She, I think, over the course of this season, she developed that thing where she knows that she's a star, even if the rest of the world hasn't caught up yet. Mm-hmm. Whereas earlier, she was like the chorus girl who was hoping to get noticed, who was trying to romance the director, but wasn't quite as self-assured, you know? Okay. Yeah. More Karen Cartwright, less Ivy Lynn. (laughs) (laughs) Every episode now, I'm going to work one in.